Trump's four years in office, the coronavirus, and the circumstances of the 2020 election have exposed the fragility of the American democratic process, as well as how polarized and partisan the country has become. In part one of our two-part series on Trump's attempts to delegitimize the election, we looked at the election to raise questions over voter suppression, the Electoral College, and the role of mainstream media in molding political narratives. We started to talk about why Trump has been able to erode confidence in American democracy by looking at the American historical context. This time, we'll be digging deeper into the questions we raised in part one. Although looking at developments in the United States is an important part of understanding this erosion of confidence in democracy, it is also important to try and understand this phenomenon within a wider global context. From the Brown Political Review, I'm Rachel Lim. And I'm Annika Sigstad. This is BP Radio. To start, we spoke with Professor Nicholas Ziegler, who teaches international and public affairs at Brown. Professor Ziegler views the Trump presidency not as unique, but as one instance of populist, ethno-nationalist, and anti-democratic rhetoric succeeding electorally in recent years. Well, I think that uh, the United States and the United Kingdom uh, are quite similar in this respect. What elevated um, these uh, right-wing leaders into power is either um, an explicit appeal to ethno-nationalism, as in the case of Donald Trump, or in the case of Boris Johnson, um, a willingness to embrace uh, other political entrepreneurs, in Britain's case, Nigel Farage and the United Kingdom Independence Party, who had an even more predatory and explicit anti-immigrant position, which Boris Johnson um, may or may not personally share. Uh, he doesn't articulate it as sharply as UKIP did, but he's more than willing to benefit from that constituency and that movement. As the United States, right-wing movements in the United Kingdom have mobilized their supporters on a fear of outsiders. Professor Ziegler continued by talking about how similar movements in Turkey and Belarus have also engaged in similar anti-democratic behavior. Turkey and uh, Belarus raised an additional issue of democratic backsliding, um, which um, is also present in the United Kingdom, but in somewhat milder form. Um, these are populist leaders um, who are um, initially elected because they appeal on the basis of authenticity, uh, anti-elite sentiment, uh, anti-foreigner sentiment, but what's in, once in power, they're not content uh, to play by the rules of electoral democracy or simply to represent their own constituency. They want to remain in power, um, and they will begin explicitly to dismantle the checks and balances of constitutional democracies in order to stay in power. Uh, that's certainly what Erdogan has done um, with his treatment of the press and the universities. Um, uh, it's what uh, uh, um, happened in Belarus 
through simple rejection of the clear popular vote and a rigged election. And I do think it is similar to what Donald Trump is doing right now in trying to question uh, a clear electoral outcome. All over the world, right-wing populist movements have been able to capitalize on a distrust of both domestic elites and outsiders. Understanding the parallels between these movements and the movement for Donald Trump is key to thinking about rebuilding faith in democracy. Brazil, under President Jair Bolsonaro, is another country with a political situation that can help us understand our own. To better understand the important parallels, we spoke to James Green. Professor Green teaches modern Latin American history at Brown and serves as the director of the Brazil Initiative, a program run out of Brown to coordinate research on Brazil. Trump and Bolsonaro both reflect a larger international process, which is the process of right-wing populists sometimes using anti-immigration in the case of, of Hungary or kind of conservative Catholic morality in the case of Poland or anti-crime and corruption in the case of the Philippines um, or uh, a nostalgia for a mythic Soviet past and the familiarity with an authoritarian government in the case of, of Russia with Putin too consolidate power and, and, and attain it. Um, and so they all rely on the appeal to a past that seemed to have been, have been better and more um, stable and wholesome than the current uh, world situation that we're living in. Professor Green suggested that this tactic of right-wing populists to appeal to a supposedly more stable past is fundamentally linked to their attempts to weaponize fear of outsiders for electoral gains. Although these countries all have political situations deeply tied to their own histories, all of these right-wing movements are tied together by a link between nostalgia and demonization of outsiders. As I said, many of them use the fear of the other, whether it's the alleged you know, hordes from Syria who were supposedly going to walk through Hungary, and so Hungary's borders had to be closed down, or the fear of immigrants from Africa or the Middle East coming to Europe that has uh, fueled other right-wing movements that are not necessarily in power, or in the case of Brazil, the fear of the left in some large-scale way being a threat to, uh, and communism being a threat to, to Brazil uh, as one of the things that Bolsonaro is used to uh, to paint his his enemies as um, as dangerous to the society and to to the people, and so I think there's that commonality among them. And the other commonality is the restructuring of the world economy is causing instability, which I think people feel, and therefore these right wing forces play on them by offering sort of uh, promises for improving the lives of people in order to compensate for this instability that they're facing. With Professor Green said something important at the end there. The global economic dislocations of recent decades is responsible for much of this underlying feeling of instability. People around the world have become increasingly disillusioned with the economic and political systems that brought these dislocations, and anti-democratic movements have been able to exploit these feelings of instability for their own benefit. Part of it is the way that um, the world economy has been restructured in ways in which a lot of people have lost employment and jobs and have been um, kind of forced to be in the informal economy with a lot of instability, um, which has caused a lot of anxiety. And so 
right-wing populists who have a nostalgic view of a, a past, a mythic past that was allegedly better for people is something that can be very appealing to people who are feeling kind of lost. The economic instability of the past few decades is a key driver of the appeal to nostalgia that these right-wing movements are making. But Professor Green also stressed that these movements are capitalizing on backlash against various movements for social justice. The appeal to a supposedly more stable past is also based on a belief that stability is connected to patriarchy and racial hierarchy. Since the 1960s and even before the United States, there have been tremendous uh, upsets in structural racism and hierarchies in society. The civil rights movement in the United States um, really gave people, African Americans, the first time the possibility of participating theoretically as equal citizens. And the movements um, of, the, of the African Americans and women and LGBTQ people and other sectors, Latinos and other sectors in society, has also caused a kind of a pushback from people who want to return to a period in which, um, in the case of the United States, whites dominated, or in, in Latin America, where the middle classes had privileges and poor people and working class people didn't have the same opportunities or the possibilities of upward mobility. So there's a reaction against social changes in society that causes anxiety among sectors of, of, of the population. In the face of this kind of backlash against movements for social equality, it's more important than ever to take significant steps to broaden access to the electoral system for all Americans. In our efforts to include all Americans in the democratic process, we must also think about how we can make the government more accountable for the needs of Americans. Professor Ziegler stressed that polarization and obstructionism was a significant cause of the loss of faith in democracy that we're seeing. Yes. Significant parties um, become so obstructionist that they prevent democracy from functioning well. That dramatically increases the chances that a population becomes disenchanted with democracy and begins to feel that it needs a strong leader who will cut through all the confusion and gridlock. And that's clearly um, another part of President Trump's appeal that brought him into the White House, and it's another reason that uh, choices being made now by people in the Republican Party are so important. If the Republicans on Capitol Hill um, take an obstructionist path in the next administration, they uh, can do a lot to damage uh, the uh, uh, ability of uh, American democracy to respond to the problems the country faces, and that increases the chances of um, an American electorate deciding that uh, democracy just is not working for them anymore. I think it's worthwhile to pause for a moment and think about what we've been discussing. On the one hand, marginalized people in this country are engaging in an ongoing struggle for equal participation. As access to the vote was expanded to new groups of people, methods of excluding people from the electoral process have evolved. Our democratic system is built on a deeply exclusionary foundation, and we must understand that ensuring equal access to the vote is a perpetual process. At the same time, many people in this country feel that our democracy is not working in their interest. Faced with disasters like the 2008 Great Recession, the coronavirus pandemic, and the climate crisis, it is important that people feel like democracy allows them to participate meaningfully in the political process. 
As Professor Ziegler stressed, authoritarian politicians are able to capitalize on a widespread belief that our electoral system is failing to represent them. Democracy is only as strong as the faith that people have in it. The ease with which President Trump has used disenchantment with the democratic system to foster distrust in our electoral institutions has shown us faith in democracy is vulnerable and not guaranteed. In order to safeguard our democratic institutions, we must embrace reforms that make our system more democratic. American democracy is not an ancient ideal to be preserved, but a perpetual struggle for participation. For the first several decades of American elections, most states only permitted white men who owned property to vote. For more than 200 years, those excluded from political participation have fought fiercely to transform American democracy. Today, things like voter ID laws and felon disenfranchisement continue to disproportionately block people of color from voting. The virtually unrestricted flow of money from corporations and wealthy donors has created a situation where our electoral system cares more about the interests of the wealthy than of everyday people. With Joe Biden elected as president, we must be willing to examine the ways in which our democratic system is failing people. In part one of this episode, we heard from Rhode Island Secretary of State, Nellie Gorbea. Here's Secretary Gorbea again, talking about how we can maximize turnout in future elections. And I think now that we have online voter registration in a lot more states, that's the beginnings of helping to set up systems that make our voter lists more accurate. Because if you have a big denominator, your percentage is going to be... So one of it is a numbers game. Uh, but what, what you're talking about with regards to other countries, the challenge there is that their democracy is very different uh, than ours. Their history is very different than ours. In a lot of those countries, there's one election that decides everything, uh, all the way up and down the ballot. Uh, in the case of the United States, to give the presidential election uh, a holiday, but not the gubernatorial one in two years, or the local city or town election, uh, really makes this false uh, claim that somehow the federal government is the most important thing. And so I have an issue with making it a holiday. Rather, my emphasis is on education, helping people understand why voting is important, why they should be taking time out of their lives to do it. And second, to make it so that there are multiple options for people to cast their ballot. Not everybody's going to be able to go to a polling location between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Okay, but now we have really broad knowledge of voting from home, which you can do with a mail ballot. Or you can go early in person on the 20 days before the election. So by offering a larger number of options, I think it takes um, better aim at the problem of low voter participation by making it more accessible to vote, uh, while not diluting the importance of local ballot races. Increasing turnout and access to the ballot is a key part of ensuring the strength of our democracy. But it's also important to introduce reforms in areas where our system is undemocratic. Professor Green suggested that doing away with the Electoral College, a proposal widely discussed in recent years, would be an important step toward making elections more democratic. So we have one of the most undemocratic uh, 
political systems in the, in the world. And people, you know, people try to understand even the electoral college is you know, scratching their heads. It takes me every time I give a talk about the situation in the United States to present an audience. I've spent 10 or 15 minutes explaining this arcane anti-democratic system that was designed partially to, you know, control or to justify slavery in the 18th century. And, um, and, and, and maintain political power among sectors of the society. It makes no sense at all that we don't elect our president by direct popular vote. Uh, and that California and New York, which are extremely important states, have much little less in importance uh, in, the, in the Congress, uh, especially in the Senate, than Wyoming or North Dakota or even Rhode Island. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that there's a, there's a Senate in which, um, which uh, California, which has such a large population, has two senators, and Rhode Island has two senators. But Professor Green had bolder visions for ensuring universal access to the ballot. He argued that reforms of political and electoral institutions should be considered as long as they improved access to our democratic process. Since we've seen the maneuvers of the Republicans over the last four years, I think it's very justifiable to talk about expanding the Supreme Court uh, and actually guaranteeing voting. It's, it's, first of all, people don't understand that it, can, it should take it takes two or three weeks to know the results of elections because in most countries, everyone has a national ID that's your voting card, or you get registered, and you can't have two of them, so you can't vote for two people, and you vote. And go into a machine, and then test the machines, and the results are known an hour after the elections, uh, the elections uh, polls close. And whereas in the United States, we have an extremely decentralized and arcane way of determining elections with different rules on 50 states. And on one hand, this might prevent someone hacking the voting system and manipulating the elections. On the other hand, it prevents there to be uniformity with many states doing everything possible to prevent universal voting, which there should be. Everyone who is a citizen of the United States should have the right to vote, period. Whether you've been a felon or not, if you're out of prison, you've served your term, you should be able to vote, no questions asked. We are far from having universal and equal access to voting in this country. But even as we fight to make the electoral system more inclusive, we have to look past access to the vote as well. People still need to organize for their interests to ensure that the officials they vote into office are listening and responding to their needs. Democracy is not only about voting for representatives in government. It also involves engagement and participation with public life. To close, here's Professor Green talking about the importance of mobilizing people around progressive causes to introduce public pressure and participate in the democratic process, even after you cast your vote. But actually being a part of transforming society, being engaged in society, that's a very hard thing to do. Most people are just interested in getting through the day and getting, you know, getting their paycheck and getting food on the table and dealing with their kids and their families and their lives. But that's, that's the way this is going to happen. And you mobilize people, just as women mobilized after Trump's election and, and 18 people mobilized uh, Elections, and I'm using that as one example, or as people on Black Lives Matter mobilized during the, the, the pandemic to push for the government to change. And I think had some effect. We'll see how long lasting that effect will be. That's the way you change society. Mm-hmm. It's mobilizing people and pushing them to be reforms.